Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creature's that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. You're listening to episode 179 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the reported canals on Mars and the possibility that life exists on that planet. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Before we get started, folks, be sure to stick around for the end of the episode, as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode on Paul Amadeus Dinoch. But first, the planet Mars has always been mysterious. The ancient Mesopotamians thought of it as the god of war and plague. The Greeks and Romans also thought of it as the god of war. But as science developed, it was discovered to be a planet like Earth. In fact, its climate is the most like Earth of any planet in our solar system. As a result, people have long wondered if there is life on Mars. This idea got a big boost in the 19th century when astronomers announced they'd discovered a huge planet-spanning network of canals on Mars. That implied not just life, but a civilization on the planet. Is there life on Mars? How did it get there? And what is it like? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin? This is going to be a two-part mystery. I want to begin by talking about how we got to where we are now in our knowledge of Mars. Uh, Today, we'll be looking at the history of what people thought about there being life on Mars down to the 1970s when we got our first test results from the planet's surface. Then next week, we'll look at the resulting controversy and all the evidence we've gotten since then. And the evidence is going to show that there is quite a good likelihood that there is life on Mars. So you'll definitely want to listen. Also, I want to let the listeners know that, yes, I have had David Bowie's song Life on Mars running through my head while preparing the script for this episode. Excellent. Now we all do. (laughs) Look at those cavemen go. (laughs) So a lot of people think that there's evidence of not just life on Mars, but intelligent life or at least the ruins of an ancient civilization. 
That's true. There have been a lot of claims that of that nature, both within the UFO community and in the remote viewing community. Uh, we'll be talking about those in future episodes, and that's why I wanted to do this one first. It's a way of establishing a kind of scientific baseline for those future episodes by looking at what has already been established by Mars, what we're likely to learn in the near future, and what current science has to say about the issue. So this is one of our periodic foundational stories or mysteries that serves to introduce topics we'll be talking about in more depth in the future. Then let's begin. When was Mars discovered and what did the ancients know about it? Mars was discovered in the prehistoric period before the development of writing. People have been staring up at the night sky ever since there have been people and the natural human tendency to see patterns in things uh, led them to identify the patterns of stars that we now refer to as constellations. In previous episodes, we've discussed how there is evidence that people were already talking about the constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear, at least 15,000 years ago, because we have similar legends about the Great Bear in both East Asia and North America, suggesting that the legends began before people crossed the Bering Land Bridge and started populating North America. Similarly, there have been legends about the Pleiades star cluster known as the Seven Sisters that may go back tens of thousands of years. But as people noticed these patterns in the night sky, they noticed something else. In addition to the constellations, the stable star patterns, there were also certain stars that wandered through the constellations, and their motions could be really strange. Sometimes these wandering stars would move forward, then they would pause, and they would move backwards, and then they'd stop again and start moving forwards once more. By the time of the Greeks, these wandering stars were known as planetes asteres, which is Greek for wandering stars. It's also where we get the term planet from planetes, uh, from the Greek word for wanderer. So the ancients knew about Mars as a wandering star, and the Greeks even called it a planet, but they didn't mean the same thing by that which we do. No, they just thought of planets as wandering stars. The difference between planets and other stars was that planets didn't have a fixed position in a constellation. But that was it. That was the only difference. The ancients did not realize that the Earth is a planet or that Mars was a ball of rock like the Earth is. It took quite a while for that to be figured out. And since the stars were identified with gods in the ancient world, Mars was often identified as a god. That's why the Sumerians thought of it as Nurgle, the god of war and plague. The Greeks thought of it as Ares, the god of war. And the Romans thought of it as Mars, the god of war. And why did they keep identifying Mars with the god of war? Uh, part of it may simply be cultural diffusion. The astronomical systems used by the Greeks and the Romans were invented in Mesopotamia, in modern Iraq. Uh, in fact, there's a Babylonian document known as the Mul Apin that records information about a bunch of stars and constellations. And by analyzing the Mul Apin, scholars have been able to figure out when and where it was written based on the observations it records. It turns out that the Mulapine was written around 1370 BC, within a few years of that, in or near the city of Ashur, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. 
And the Mullapine describes many of the constellations that would be inherited by the Greeks and the Romans. So since the Mesopotamians already viewed Mars as the god of war, that could have been inherited by Greco-Roman culture. However, there's also another reason Mars may be linked to war. If you observe Mars carefully, even with the naked eye, it looks more reddish than other stars. So even back then, it was the red planet, and it's been associated with things connected to the color red. In East Asian cultures, like in China, it was known as the fire star because fire is red. And since human blood is also red and blood gets spilled in warfare, that might be why the Mesopotamians and others associated it with the god of war. When did people have the idea that Mars might be a planet like ours? I haven't been able to determine exactly when, but it may have been by the second century A.D. The reason I say that is in the second century A.D., a Greek comedy writer named Lucian of Samosata wrote a short novel called A True Story or A True History, depending on how you translate it. And it's often considered one of the earliest works of science fiction. In it, a band of humans get caught up to our sister planet, the moon, where they end up getting involved in a war between the king of the moon and the king of the sun. At issue in the war is a plan by the king of the moon to take the poorest people from his kingdom and send them to Venus to found a colony there. Venus, at this point in the story, isn't inhabited, but the king of the sun doesn't want the colony there, so he and the king of the moon are going to war. And the humans are invited to participate in the war, which is really bizarre and science fiction-y, at least by ancient standards. Lucian doesn't mention Mars in a true story, but the fact he's got Venus being colonized suggests an awareness that Mars and the other planets were more than just little points of light, uh, that they were sizable bodies that could be inhabited and where you might send a colony of people. So this kind of awareness of Mars may already have been around by the second century. And when did we start getting a better understanding of Mars and what it's like? Not until the scientific revolution and the invention of the telescope. Galileo was the first person to look at Mars through a telescope, but he didn't make significant discoveries about it. Like, for example, he did Jupiter. He saw Jupiter's moons and the moons of Mars were too small for him to see. The first person to observe and draw a feature on the surface of Mars was the Dutch scientist Christian Huygens. In 1659, he recorded a dark patch on the surface of Mars. We now know this dark patch as Certus Major, a volcanic plain covered with darker basaltic rock from extinct volcanoes. This was the first documented surface feature seen on another planet other than our sister planet, the moon. And because it was darker in color than the rest of Mars's surface, there was speculation about what it was, and people thought it might be a sea, meaning a sea filled with water. In fact, it was originally called the Hourglass Sea, and over time, they saw it changing shape. Changing shape? What did they think was responsible for that? 
they noticed that some of the alterations in its shape seem to be correlated with the seasons on Mars. Mars has an axial tilt of 25 degrees, which is almost the same as Earth's axial tilt of 23 degrees. So Mars also experiences changes in seasons, just like we do. There's a Martian summer and winter and spring and fall. Uh, People therefore thought that maybe the hourglass sea is a shallow water sea that could partially dry up and then replenish over the course of the Martian year, just like lakes here on Earth can partially evaporate in the summer and shrink and then refill and expand when the rainy season hits. Or, they thought, maybe it isn't necessarily a change in the water level. Maybe it's vegetation on the surface of Mars that's growing and then dying off with the different Martian seasons. The way you could see patches on Earth getting green and then turning brown with the changes of the seasons if you were in Earth orbit. So that naturally got them wondering about life on Mars. So what do modern scientists attribute these changes in the appearance of Sirtis Major or the Hourglass Sea to? Dust storms. In the 1960s and 70s, the Mariner and Viking probes led scientists to conclude that it was seasonal dust storms blowing sand and dust across the basaltic volcanic plain that was causing it to change shape. But even though that turned out to be a dead end, Huygens' discovery of Sirtis Major ended up making more than one big contribution to science. Not only was it the first feature on the surface of a distant planet that was well documented, it also allowed Huygens to work out the length of the Martian day. He could track the dark patch as it moved across the surface of Mars as it rotated, and then see how long it took for the patch to rotate around the planet and come back to the same point. And he determined that the Martian day is 24 and one half hours long, which is a very accurate measurement. Today, we know that the Martian day is 24 hours and 37 minutes long. So almost exactly 24 and a half hours day. So good job, Christian Huygens. So if Huygens began a primitive mapping of Mars surface by noting Sirtis Major, how did that mapping progress? As telescopes got better, astronomers started seeing smaller details on the surface and drawing them. And it's important to note that they were drawing them because this was the era before photography. In fact, even after photography was invented, it was a while before they figured out how to successfully hook up a camera to a telescope and take good pictures. So for a long time, they were still relying on astronomers squinting into their telescopes for hours and then drawing their impressions. And that inevitably introduced a subjective element into the maps of Mars that were significant in the next phase of our story. So what happened as astronomers started using newer, better telescopes to record their impressions? Some of the key developments happened in the 1800s. It was at this time that the Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli enters our story. He made a bunch of detailed observations of Mars, which resulted in the first detailed maps of the surface of the planet. Among other things, he saw there were light and dark patches on Mars's surface, which he described as seas and continents, again suggesting a planet similar to the Earth, which has seas and continents on its surface. In 1877, though, 
he also saw a network of lines on the surface. Yeah, and Scaparelli gave these lines a name that turned out to be very important. What did he call them and why was it so significant? Scaparelli called the lines canali. This is an Italian word that means channels or grooves. But when people translated Scaparelli's works into English, they rendered the word canali as canals. And in English, a canal is an artificial structure. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a canal is defined as an artificial waterway for navigation or for draining or irrigating land. So while natural processes might wear channels or grooves in a landscape, in keeping with Scaparelli's canali, only intelligent beings would carve canals or artificial waterways into a landscape. Thus, the choice of the word canali and the translation of it as canals turned out to be very important for shaping people's ideas about a possible Martian civilization. How did people react when Scaparelli published his sightings of these canali? A lot of astronomers turned their telescopes towards Mars to see if they, too, could see the lines on its surface. And they did. The canali were confirmed by multiple other astronomers. And since people were thinking of them not just as channels or grooves, but as artificially constructed canals, there was a lot of speculation about intelligent life on Mars and why the civilization there would build such a worldwide network of canals. What did they conclude the canals were for? It turns out that Certus Major may not have been the only surface feature on Mars that Christian Huygens uh, sketched in 1659. He also drew something that may have been one of Mars's polar ice caps. By 1666, the Italian astronomer uh, Giovanni Domenico Cassini had spotted Mars's southern polar ice cap, and by 1672, Huygens had definitely observed the northern polar ice cap. So by the 1670s, astronomers were aware that Mars had polar ice caps just like Earth, and they naturally concluded that these were made of water. And that's not wrong. The Martian polar ice caps are largely made of water. In fact, if you melted them, they would cover the surface of Mars to a depth of 36 feet in an ocean of water, whole planet. So with astronomers recognizing these polar ice caps as made of water, and with Scaparelli noticing the network of lines that seemed to connect with the polar ice caps, they drew the natural conclusion. They figured that the global network of canals had been built in order to transport water from the polar regions to other parts of the planet. Why would the Martians want to do that? Presumably because water wasn't available in sufficient quantities elsewhere on the planet. I mean, if you go to all the effort of building a global canal network to transport water from the poles to other areas, it's presumably because the other areas don't have the water and desperately need it. So maybe much of Mars was a desert or had become a desert and the Martians needed to import water from the locations where it could be found. This created the impression of Mars as a dying planet that was running out of water. So the inhabitants needed to conduct this global construction project that dwarfed anything we had built here on Earth. 
Was there other evidence supporting this idea? One of the things that astronomers noted was that the ice caps at Mars's poles melted and got smaller during part of the Martian year. This was accompanied by larger dark patches on the surface of the planet. So they thought that these dark patches might be vegetation that was growing during the Martian summer when the planet was warmer and the water was flowing down from the poles, perhaps brought by this enormous planetary canal system. How did scientists react at the time of this idea? Very positively. In fact, there was one particular scientist that we need to talk about who who kind of led this movement. He was an American named Percival Lowell, and he wasn't originally an astronomer. He was born in 1855 into a rich upper class family in your hometown, Boston. That's right. Um, He's what's known as a Boston Brahmin. That's Mm -hmm. the term for the upper class families there. And as an adult, he became something of a polymath with expertise in multiple fields. Eventually, he decided to dedicate himself to astronomy, and he used his wealth to build the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. At the time, it was normal for observatories to be funded by wealthy patrons, as scientists had not yet become addicted to government tax dollars to supply their funding. But previously, the wealthy patrons had wanted their telescopes to be built near where they lived so they could, you know, look out of their door and see the observatories and take pride in them and show them off to people in their communities. And that was a problem. Because the wealthy patrons tended to live in low-lying cities where there was light pollution and a thicker atmosphere because of the low altitude, not to mention smoke from from industries in the air that would help block the view of stars. And those conditions didn't make for ideal viewing. So Lowell decided he wanted to fix all that, and he set his observatory in a remote location, far away from a big city where there wouldn't be light and air pollution, and he put it on a mountain at 7,000 feet of elevation, so the atmosphere was thinner. And he put it in a state that didn't have a lot of cloud cover or bad weather, you know, Arizona, meaning that there would be more nights of the year for good viewing. This was the first time an observatory had been placed this way for optimal viewing instead of for pleasing a donor. And it was a big advancement in the field of astronomy. Uh, Today, this kind of thing is standard for Earth-based telescopes, and it was Lowell we have to thank for this innovation. And did he make other contributions to astronomy? Lowell also took an interest in the idea that there must be an undiscovered planet beyond Neptune, and he helped facilitate the search for it. He called the unknown planet Planet X, (laughs) and his team actually photographed Pluto twice before his death in 1916, but they didn't realize they had it on film. Yet, it was still the Lowell Observatory that finally discovered Pluto in 1930, 14 years after Percival Lowell's death. And the name Pluto, which starts with P-L, was eventually chosen in part because the P-L at the front of the word could honor Percival Lowell. And the astronomical symbol for Pluto is a P that's been fused with an L, again, partly in honor of Percival Lowell. Still, he's most famous for his work on Mars. So what conclusions did he reach? 
He wrote several books about the planet, including the 1906 book, Mars and Its Canals. In it, he wrote, That Mars is inhabited by beings of some sort or other, we may consider as certain as it is uncertain what those beings may be. The theory of the existence of intelligent life on Mars may be likened to the atomic theory in chemistry in that, in both, we are led to the belief in units which we are alike unable to define. Both theories explain the facts in their respective fields and are the only theories that do, while as to what an atom may resemble we know as little as what a Martian may be like. But the behavior of chemic compounds points to the existence of atoms too small for us to see, and in the same way the aspect and behavior of the Martian markings implies the action of agents too far away to be made out. And he was right about the atomic theory. Albert Einstein had only proved the existence of atoms the year before, in 1905. And at the time, scientists had no idea how the atom was structured, or really kind of if it was structured. That was something that wouldn't be worked out for decades. But Lowell believed that you could deduce a good bit about the inhabitants of Mars based on the global canal system they had built. He wrote... Apart from the general fact of intelligence implied by the geometric character of their constructions, is the evidence as to its degree afforded by the cosmopolitan extent of the action. Girdling their globe and stretching from pole to pole, the Martian canal system not only embraces their whole world, but is an organized entity. Each canal joins another, which in turn connects with a third, and so on, over the entire surface of the planet. This continuity of construction posits a community of interest. Now, when we consider that, though not so large as the Earth, the world of Mars is one of 4,200 miles diameter, and therefore containing something like 212 million of square miles, the unity of the process acquires considerable significance. The supposed vast enterprises of the Earth look small beside it. None of them but become local in comparison, gigantic as they seem to us to be. Lowell even was able to draw inferences about Martian psychology. The first thing that is forced on us in conclusion is the necessarily intelligent and non-bellicose character of the community, which could thus act as a unit throughout its globe. War is a survival among us from savage times and affects now chiefly the boyish and unthinking element of the nation. The wisest realize that there are better ways for practicing heroism and other and more certain ends of ensuring the survival of the fittest? It is something a people outgrow. But whether they consciously practice peace or not, nature in its evolution eventually practices it for them. And after enough of the inhabitants of a globe have killed each other off, the remainder must find it more advantageous to work together for the common good. Whether increasing common sense or increasing necessity was the spur that drove the Martians to this eminently sagacious state, we cannot say, but it is certain that reached it they have, and equally certain that if they had not, they must all die. When a planet has attained to the age of advancing decrepitude, and the remnant of its water supply resides simply in its polar caps, these can only be effectively tapped for the benefit of the inhabitants when Arctic and equatorial peoples are at one. Difference of policy on the question of the all-important water supply means nothing short of death. Isolated communities cannot there be sufficient unto themselves. They must combine to solidarity or perish. From the fact, therefore, that the reticulated canal system is an elaborate entity embracing the whole planet from one pole to the other, 
we have not only proof of the worldwide sagacity of its builders, but a very suggestive sidelight to the fact that only a universal necessity such as water could well be its underlying cause. Lowell deduces that the Martians must be peaceful, which is what he means when he says that they're non-bellicose, and that he they also must be wise and sage-like, which is what he means when he talks about their sagacity. I think that's interesting, but I also think he's missing a possibility, which is that the Martians might be natively just as warlike and foolish as us, except that they're living under a brutal dictatorship that has managed to both stifle all dissent in their culture and been able to build the worldwide network of canals. I mean, after all, in ancient Egypt, you had powerful pharaohs who were able to build great monuments like the pyramids. But Egypt was very far from being a peaceful, freedom-loving place. You needed a strong leader to build great monuments. That's why other civil, other peoples in the area and elsewhere in the world didn't do that unless they had a strong leader. Sometimes it's the brutal dictators that achieve big things. And maybe that could also be responsible if the Martians had been able to build a global canal network. Such a network would definitely be monumental in scale, just like the monuments of ancient Egypt. I also should point out that Lowell overlooked one possibility, which is that maybe a dying Martian civilization built the canals and then died. Just because you have canals doesn't mean you have living canal builders. And there have been lots of people proposing that there is a dead civilization on Mars, which we will be talking about in future episodes. So from this point, we're going to talk about the theories about life on Mars in the canals. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Father Nathan L., Andrew B., Tristram C., Nate and Jessica V., and Daniel B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit FearventoLaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O Law.com. So, Jimmy, before we start talking about the modern search for life on Mars, what theories should we be considering? Are there just two that there is or isn't life on Mars? Those are the two basic theories, but there are some variations on both of them that we should consider. First, if life does exist on Mars, what kind is it? It could just be microbes. It could involve plants or animals or even intelligent life. And second, if there is life, when did it appear? It could have begun as early as life appeared on Earth, or even earlier. Or it could have just arrived when we started sending Mars landers. And third, if life existed on Mars in the past, is it still there? Mm. 
So what can we say about life on Mars from the faith perspective? There is certainly no conflict with the Christian faith if there is life on Mars. We know that God put life here, but the faith doesn't say that God only put life here. We know he created a vast universe, and it's very possible that he wanted life on more than one tiny planet. So the faith has no problem at all if there's life on Mars or any other planet. But what about intelligent life? We already know that God created intelligent beings besides us, namely the angels. Uh, They happen to be purely spiritual creatures, but the fact we know that God created intelligent beings more than just once, more than just us, means that we shouldn't dismiss the idea of other intelligent biological creatures like us. If listeners would like a full discussion of the theological implications of intelligent alien life, they should go back and listen to episode 55 on aliens and religion. In the theories section, you said life could have appeared on Mars before it appeared on Earth. Does that have any faith-related implications? The answer is no, not really, but there's some more to say here. There are a number of theories about how life arose. It's commonly assumed, both you know, by ordinary people and by many scientists, that the life we have here on Earth started on this planet. But that's an assumption, not something that's been proved. An alternative view is that life originated elsewhere in the universe and then came here. Uh, For example, if it arose on Mars first, it could have been carried here by meteorites and then taken hold in Earth's more favorable climate. There's even a theory known as panspermia, which holds that microbial life is common throughout the universe and that it travels on comets and asteroids and meteoroids, seeding new planets as they form. So on this view, life could have existed even before Earth and Mars, before they formed, and that's why it seemingly showed up so early after the formation of the solar system, instead of waiting billions of years to develop. We may talk about panspermia and similar theories in a future episode. Is that view compatible with the Christian faith? Many Christians haven't really thought about it, but if you do think about it carefully, the answer is yes. Scripture reveals that God made life, but it doesn't say how or when that first happened. The creation narrative in Genesis 1, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church explains, um, presents the work of the Creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine work concluded by the rest of the seventh day. So the six days are symbolic rather than literal. They convey what God did that he made everything in the world, but they don't attempt to give us the literal details of the process. If you'd like more information about that, you can go back and listen to episodes 119, 120, and 121 on the Young Earth Hypothesis, where we discuss the days of creation in Genesis in detail. In any event, God made life, and part of that process could have involved coming up with microbial life on Mars or elsewhere in the universe and having it migrate to Earth. That's consistent with what the text of Genesis is trying to teach us. And it should be obvious that Genesis isn't trying to teach us anything in particular about microbial life, because 
the ancient Israelites didn't even know that microbes exist. It would be completely pressing the text beyond its limits to try to claim that Genesis 1 teaches us that microbes were first made here on Earth when the text doesn't even mention microbes and they were a completely unknown concept for the sacred author and his audience. Furthermore, even if you take Genesis 1 literally, it doesn't ever mention the creation of life. There is no moment where God says, let there be life. Instead, here's what it says about the first life forms that the text does mention. In the account of the third day, we read, And God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning a third day. So the first life forms that Genesis 1 mentions are plants and they appear on the third day. That doesn't in any way deal with the life forms that led up to plants. God could have created microbial life before the plants, and he could have created it anywhere in the cosmos that he had made, whether on earth or not, and then used that life to develop the plants that he put here. So even a totally literal reading of Genesis doesn't preclude this. So what can we say about life on Mars from the reason perspective? Before we talk about the evidence for life, let's take a look at the argument against there being life there. What does this involve? The case essentially involves the fact that conditions on Mars are harsh, especially today. The atmosphere is thin. The temperature is cold. Uh, the surface gets a lot of UV radiation from the sun, ultraviolet radiation. Um, there are some chemicals that might make it harder for life. We won't go into the weeds with a bunch of details, but basically a lot of life forms that we have on Earth would not be able to survive on Mars the way it is now. However, Mars used to be a much more life-friendly planet with a denser atmosphere, a magnetic field that protected it from radiation, and a warmer environment with lots of liquid water on the surface. In fact, now we're recording this in October of 2020, uh, 2021. One, yeah. <laughs> um, now that I'm no longer seven years old, the years don't matter so much. Um, but we're recording this in October, and it's just been announced that there used to be flash floods on Mars. Uh, for the first part of this month, we weren't getting readings from our probes on Mars because it was behind the sun or too near the sun for us to get a good signal from the probes. But that let the astronomers have some time to analyze data. And the, a, the team working on the Perseverance probe found something really interesting. Now, we put Perseverance, which landed earlier this year, uh, we put it down in Jezero Crater, which is a dry lake bed. And they found that not only was there a lake there in the past, there was a river which fed in to Jezero Lake. And that river occasionally had flash floods running down it because there are boulders 
it deposited in the crater. And you need a flash flood to move boulders. A slow, gentle flow of water won't do that. So that means a lot of water moving violently across the surface of Mars in order to disturb the boulders. We'll have a link by uh, Dr. Becky where she talks about this new discovery on her YouTube channel. And despite the conditions that currently exist on Mars, we have microorganisms here on Earth that could survive on Mars just fine, even today. So I don't think that there is a good case that life can't exist on Mars, either in the past or in the present. So what if it did exist in the past? What would have happened when the conditions on Mars got harsher? Evolution would have happened. Many species would have gone extinct, but others would have adapted. Uh, this would be particularly easy for small, fast reproducing organisms like microbes. They would have been able to evolve more quickly since their generations are shorter to, uh, to meet the changing conditions. If there had been plants, animals, or aliens on Mars, they might have all died off, but the microbes would have survived and adapted. And maybe some plants and animals would have adapted too, especially smaller, simpler ones. Basically, though, I think that if life ever gets a foothold on a planet like Mars, it's going to continue to exist. Individual species will die with changing environmental conditions, but life itself is just too good at adapting and surviving. That's what life does. As Jeff Goldblum says in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. We'll be talking about the possibility of there having been an ancient civilization on Mars in future episodes. But when it came to evaluating the work of Percival Lowell, scientists eventually determined that Mars didn't have a global network of canals. So how do they arrive at that conclusion? By the beginning of the 20th century, astronomers had begun integrating cameras with their telescopes. So now it was possible to start photographing what was coming through the telescope instead of astronomers having to draw their subjective impressions of what they were seeing. In 1901, the American astronomer A.E. Douglas tried to photograph the Martian canals. And in 1905, another American astronomer, Carl Lampland, published photographs that appeared to show the canals. But telescopes were always getting bigger and using newer, improved imaging techniques that were letting them get more precise images. And these started eroding the impression of canals that people had been perceiving. As the telescopes and photographs got better, they started seeing fewer long lines on the surface of Mars. And scientists like the Greek astronomer Eugene Antoniadi and the English Alfred Russell Wallace started proposing that they were just in people's imaginations. In 1909, Eugene Antoniadi got really good pictures of Mars when Mars was close and had really clear weather, and his pictures didn't show the canals. Instead, they just showed irregular spots and blotches on the surface, and that turned out to be the real explanation of the canals. They were optical illusions created as people's minds connected the dimly seen spots and blotches. This is the same principle that's used in the artistic technique known as pointillism or stippling, 
And it's also the technique that's used to print pictures in newspapers or put them on your TV screen, where arrays of dots seen at a distance look like regular lines and shapes. Were any of the canals that Schiaparelli and Lowell saw real? One of them was. Mars is home to the largest valley in the solar system. It's called the Valles Mariner. Uh, Marineris or Mariner Valley, and it's 2,500 miles long. If it were on Earth, it would stretch all the way across North America from New York City to Los Angeles. Arizona's Grand Canyon, by contrast, would be absolutely tiny compared to Mariner Valley. And it's basically one long line, so it's kind of hard to miss even from Earth. As a result, at least one of the Canali was real though it appears to be a purely natural formation. Even if the Martians hadn't built canals, though, that didn't mean that Martians didn't exist. There could still be intelligent life on Mars. In principle, yes, but the new results also started undermining that belief. As far back as classical antiquity, the Romans had been aware that a glass prism could split light into a rainbow of colors. And by the 1600s, scientists were starting to study this phenomenon. One of them was Isaac Newton, and he is credited as the founder of the study of spectroscopy. Spectroscopy is the branch of science that involves studying how the spectrum of light is affected by various conditions, like when it interacts with matter. By the mid-1800s, scientists had realized that you could learn about the chemical composition of things by looking at the light that they emitted or reflected. Depending on what elements light interacts with, it will have certain line-like segments missing from the rainbow spectrum. These dark lines on the spectrum are known as absorption lines or Fraunhofer lines after the German physicist Josef von Fraunhofer who discovered and studied them. Once scientists realized that they were caused by the interaction of light with elements, they used this technique to discover a bunch of new elements that eventually went on the periodic table. They also were able to settle an age-old debate about what the stars are made from. Because it had been a question ever since the ancient Greeks whether the stars were made out of the same kind of matter we have here on Earth, the same elements, or whether they were made out of something else. So there was this speculation they were made out of a, a different element called quintessence that we didn't have here on Earth. And many thought that this was a question you couldn't ever settle because you couldn't go to the stars and take samples of them and test them. But in the 1860s, a British husband and wife scientific duo named William and Margaret Huggins were able to use the newfangled spectroscopy to analyze the light coming from the stars to show that they were made of the same elements we have on Earth, settling that debate once and for all. And how did spectroscopy undermine the idea of intelligent life on Mars? Now that scientists had spectroscopes, they started analyzing the light reflecting off of Mars, and they found that it was missing things you need for Earth-like life. For example, in 1894, the American astronomer W.W. W. Campbell determined that if the Martian atmosphere contained any water vapor and oxygen at all, 
it was too small an amount to be detected using the spectroscopes they had at the time. Now, that result wasn't initially accepted because other astronomers were showing that there was significant water vapor and oxygen in Mars's atmosphere. But the counterargument was that these other readings were mistaken because the light from Mars had to get to the telescope by coming through Earth's atmosphere first. And Earth's atmosphere has lots of water vapor and oxygen. So maybe that's what was throwing the readings off. So it took a while to sort this out. But by 1925, the American astronomer W.S. Adams produced really good results showing that Mars simply did not have the amount of water vapor or oxygen that was previously thought. That wouldn't mean that life couldn't exist, though, even if Mars was a cold desert world with little or no oxygen, it could still have creatures adapted to that environment. True. In fact, Earth didn't used to have an oxygen atmosphere, but there was life here. Originally, Earth had a reducing atmosphere that contained a lot of carbon dioxide, but almost no free oxygen. And there was life that developed to use the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Some of this life, thought to be cyanobacteria or blue-green algae, started converting the carbon dioxide into free oxygen, leading to an event that dramatically transformed our planet's atmosphere. This event is known as the oxygen crisis, or the Great Oxidation Event, and it occurred around 2 billion years ago. What happened was that a lot of the early life died out as the cyanobacteria freed up oxygen in the atmosphere and it started changing. But life itself adapted so that we got new creatures that were suited to living in an oxygen-rich environment like us. If, by some chance, there was a second oxygen crisis and we lost all the free oxygen we have now, life would adapt again. Lots of oxygen-using creatures like us would die off, assuming we didn't use technology to save ourselves. Uh, but these creatures would be replaced by other life forms, like the ones we had before the oxygen crisis that happened two billion years ago. In any event, in the 1960s, just as we were starting to send probes to Mars, there were people arguing that Mars did have life despite the low oxygen and water conditions. For example, in 1962, Science Magazine published an article called Martian Biology, which began this way. The most plausible explanation of the markings on Mars suggests that they are living organisms, and the purpose of this article is to discuss them from this standpoint. So that was 1962, just as we were starting to send our robot slaves to do our bidding and explore Mars, you had scientists advocating the idea of robust life on Mars, at least including vegetation. When did we first get our robot slaves to Mars? It took a while. In the 1960s, the Russians tried sending nine robotic missions to Mars, all of which failed. The U.S. also had failures, but we also had better luck. In 1965, our Mariner 4 probe did the first successful flyby of Mars. You know, it just zoomed past it. And in 1971, our Mariner 9 probe did the first successful orbital insertion around Mars and established a stable orbit. 
Meanwhile, in 1971, the Russian Mars 2 probe was scheduled to land on Mars, and it succeeded in crashing into the planet instead. However, a month later, uh, Russia's Mars 3 probe did successfully land, only to stop working a few seconds later. All of the problems suffered with Mars missions, including ones we mentioned and others, have led some to speak of there being a curse of Mars because so many missions to this planet have gone wrong. How did the successful robotic missions affect the issue of life on Mars? The key moment happened in 1976 when the U.S. probes Viking 1 and Viking 2 landed on Mars. And boy, do I remember this. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, in that summer, we were in my family was spending some time in Houston with our relatives. And we went immediately like down to the um, Johnson Space Center and watched new video, you know, from there. Um, in any event, both of the Viking probes were specially designed to to search for life, and they carried three tests to look for life in soil samples. One of these tests was developed by a man named Gilbert Levin. He was an engineer who passed away earlier this year, back in July, at the age of 97. But in 1976, he was the designer of one of the key Viking life experiments. As Michael Brooks writes in his book, 13 Things That Don't Make Sense. As the mission was being designed, the life-seeking experiments were selected, honed, and then picked apart to eliminate all possibility the scientists would be fooled. The researchers were under no illusions about the importance of the task. These experiments had the potential to revolutionize our view of ourselves. Find life on Mars and our perspective would be altered suddenly and forever. The mission team, together with four NASA-appointed review committees, had agreed on what would constitute success. If any of the tests showed a positive result, a duplicate sample of Martian soil would be heated to 320 degrees Fahrenheit, a temperature that would kill any microbes, then tested again. If that second test came up negative, the researchers could safely assume they had detected life, not chemistry, in the first test. It was only afterward, after Gil Levin's experiment met the agreed criteria, that they changed their minds. And change their minds is what they did. Gil Levin's experiment returned positive results. It behaved as predicted when they did the test again, and they announced that they had found life on Mars. Carl Sagan even called Gil to congratulate him. And then they decided to change the criteria and said they hadn't found life after all. That sparked a big controversy. And that's what we'll talk about next week. Oh, can't wait. So, Jimmy, while we're waiting to talk about that next week, what further resources can we offer to the listener and viewer on this? We'll have a link to Bradley Schaefer's audio course, uh, The Remarkable Science of Ancient Astronomy, which is where you can find some documentation about uh, paleo astronomy, like how we know that the the Great Bear is as old as it is as a constellation, and also how we were able to figure out where a lot of the constellations were designed and recorded in Mesopotamia. We'll also have a link to Michael Brooks's book, 13 Things That Don't Make Sense, 
to Marsha Bartusiak's book, The Day We Found the Universe, which is, and both of those are really great books. Also, Percival Lowell's book, Mars and Its Canals, Gilbert Levin's website, uh, also a summary he wrote last year in 2020 of the evidence for life on Mars, which we'll be quoting from next week. Also, articles on life on Mars, Christian Huygens, Giovanni Scaparelli, Percival Lowell, The Martian Canals. Also, we'll have a link to that video by Dr. Becky on YouTube. She has a a PhD in astronomy from Oxford University, and she talks about um, the flash floods that used to occur on Mars near Jezero Crater. She's also really cute. Uh, We'll have a link to David Bowie's song, Life on Mars. Also, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast, which we heard a little bit of at the top of the show. Lucian of Samosata and his work, A True Story. Also, uh, video of of the song uh, Life on Mars and the 1962 Science Magazine article, Martian Biology. Excellent. Excellent. That should keep us busy, busy. So let's move on to our mysterious feedback. As promised, it's going to be about our recent episode on Paul Amadeus Dinoch. And our first feedback comes from Tabitha, who sent an email. She said, I had one thought on episode 169 on Paul Amadeus Dinoch. Dinoch translates to the after from German to English. Since he doesn't have any records of him being an actual person, I think this is another clue to this being a literary story. His name means the future. Tabitha is right. If you parse the name Dinach as two words, D-Nach in German, it does mean the after. And so that could be another literary clue that Paul Amadeus Dinach is just a literary character rather than a real person. Pretty cool. Thanks, Tabitha. Brendan sends a a message via Patreon. He says, one other possibility that may be tangential to Jimmy's conclusion. The book was a kind of novelization with some names and details altered for various purposes of some real event to get ideas out that may otherwise be too much for the public. I'm thinking along the lines of how C.S. Lewis presents the events of the Space Trilogy, especially the first book. It's fairly established that the main character, Ransom, is based on his friend J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, uh, several people asked about possible connections between uh, Chronicles of the Future um, and the Space Trilogy. So when an author uses characters that are based or events that are based on real people, it's called a Romana clef, which means a novel with a key. And this happens a lot. um, But just because something's a Romana clef doesn't mean it really happened. Uh, Sometimes there are... Um, characters that are based on real people, but then the author puts them in entirely fictional settings. Like, I don't think that J.R.R. Tolkien really got taken to Mars. Um, similarly, uh, Sherlock Holmes is based on a, a, a professor that um, Arthur Conan Doyle knew, and he's also partially an author surrogate character. He's partially based on Conan Doyle, but the adventures of Sherlock Holmes didn't really happen. And in the same way, I can't rule out that Paul Dinoch is based on somebody that uh, Papa Hatzis knew, but I don't think the novel, I don't think the events of the novel really happened. Emma sends an email 
While I do appreciate the mystery of the unsolved topics, my favorite episodes are the ones that do have specific bottom lines. There's something very satisfying about finding a solution that accounts for every detail of a seemingly inexplicable case. In this instance, your explanation seems so straightforward and fits the facts so well, I'm honestly surprised that the veracity of Paul Dinoch's diary is considered an open-ended question in some circles. Surely novels with frame stories aren't that unusual. All the more reason to be thankful for your work on this podcast, I suppose. Well, thank you, Emma. I think that the reason that this is taken seriously in some circles is due to two factors. The first one is expressed on Fox Mulder's poster, I Want to Believe. Um, a lot of people would love, and I would love to have, you know, experiences like this really be able to g give us glimpses of the distant future, assuming it's not bad. Um, so I understand that impulse. The other factor that I think is is relevant here is a lot of the people don't read the book and think carefully about it. They just hear a summary, like on somebody's podcast where they're hyping it up as, oh, think of the possibilities and not saying, OK, now that we've thought about the possibilities, let's narrow them down. What does the evidence say? But that's what we do here on Mysterious World. King of Corona on Patreon wrote, I really like your Mysterious World program and am surprised to see that so few people listen to them. Out of principle, I've never had a Facebook or other such account. Maybe there are more views out there? Um, yeah. So Mysterious World's listenership, it comes from a whole bunch of different channels. And actually, and if you look at any one of them, you won't get a complete picture. I've meant to talk about this. Someone pointed out to me, we should actually talk about, you know, the size of the podcast because it's somewhat surprising to people. We have, and it changes over time, but my current estimate of how many listeners we have is about 80,000 per episode uh, based on the download figures. And, you know, you it's like a newspaper. You uh, you know how many newspapers you, you publish and distribute, and then you estimate how many readers you have from that based on a multiplication factor, uh, assuming, you know, a typical newspaper will be seen by more than one person because there's typically more than one person in a household. Well, if you use a low multiplication factor, we've got, uh, based on our downloads, about 80,000 listeners per episode. And uh, we uh, we use a uh, podcast tracking service that indicates on Apple Podcasts here in the U.S., we are regularly a top 20 documentary podcast. Uh, so we're regularly in the top 20 uh, documentary podcasts in the U.S. Sometimes I've seen us get as high as number 13 on that list. So that's almost cracking the top 10. And we have a lot of stiff competition from organizations like, I mean, really slickly produced, highly funded podcasts from NPR and PBS and other groups also doing documentary podcasts. So actually, Mysterious World is um, is quite successful at compared to many podcasts. And we really thank the listeners for their efforts to share it with other people. We'd love to crack that top 10 and we'd mm -hmm. love to get the program out to even more people. So please do uh, share with your friends, especially when there's an episode you really like, uh, you know, let people know who you think might also be interested. 
and now that we're doing more video uh, versions of the podcast, definitely go to Jimmy's YouTube channel and subscribe and watch there too. That's also an important place to really help drive the recommendation engine and get more viewers. Yeah, I really, I, I'm trying to grow my YouTube channel and I really uh, appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell to get notifications. So thank you so much for that. Jay Spike writes on YouTube, I'm only about 20 minutes in, but this feels a lot like an H.P. Lovecraft story. It hits all the bizarre plot points. No complaints for me since he's my favorite author. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jay Spike was right on target and eventually identif I identified the H.P. Lovecraft story that is closest to what happens in, in this. It's The Shadow Out of Time. And I think The Shadow Out of Time likely was one of the influences on the Paul Dinoch story. Mm. Uh, Michael Parent also writes on YouTube, this is my favorite episode so far this year. I thought, Jimmy's, yeah, I thought Jimmy's treatment and analysis of the Nibelwerk was a little wanting. Please consider two other thoughts. First, in order for humans to evolve, a mutation must offer some way of improving the survival value of the species. A genetic mutation creating spiritual enlightenment doesn't demonstrate any survivability. In fact, it might be the case that it disadvantages a human. I don't see a reason to think the Nibelwerk would be a productive evolution based on the evidence presented in the Chronicles. Okay, so let me respond to that before we consider the second argument. Um, I, based on the way the novel portrays the Nibelwerk, um, it would seem to make people, because of their new spiritual perspective, obey the Golden Rule more. And if people are obeying the Golden Rule more and treating others the way, the way they would want to be treated, that means they're going to do things to promote the survival of others, like not kill them in warfare and things like that. And so I think that the golden rule and biblical morality in general actually has survival value. If you obey the Ten Commandments, you're going to survive better than if you don't, because they reflect human nature and what's good for humans. And so I think that uh, us, uh, if we somehow evolved a greater appreciation for the golden rule, which the Nibelwerk does, then that would confer survival value on humans, and thus it would be consistent with an evolutionary adaptation as long as the environment remains constant, where it's just humans we're dealing with on this planet. As Paul Dinoch points out in the novel, these people are setting themselves up for an alien invasion if they are hostile aliens. <laughs> and so if the aliens don't have the Nibelwerk and they don't have the same appreciation for the golden rule, then it could serve to our disadvantage in that environment. But that's the way evolution works in general. What's advantageous in one environment may become a disadvantage if the environment changes, like on Mars. Right. Uh, and then Michael had a second point. He said, second... Nevertheless, if the Nibelwerk is a product of evolution, I don't see any reason why the Nibelwerk wouldn't be compatible with Catholicism. Natural selection doesn't prune for truth value. The mutation, while profound and useful in the 40th century, might in fact be a false belief. There's no reason to think we couldn't evolve or haven't already evolved with false beliefs through naturalistic evolution. So um, if I understand Michael correctly here, he's saying... I agree that the idea of the Nibelwerk isn't intrinsically incompatible with Catholicism. Um, you could take that statement two ways, though, at least two. One of them is that we could evolve to have a greater perception 
of the world that leads to a kind of spiritual awakening. That's possible, um, you know, uh, and that wouldn't be inconsistent with the Catholic faith. I think what Michael is saying, though, is he's assuming or thinking that the Nibelwerk may involve false perceptions. And I don't disagree with that either. I would agree with him. Um, It's not, we can have perceptions that we've evolved to have that are not strictly true. Like and and recent studies of how perception works have shown this. Um, different modules in our brain will like perceive the shape of an object, and then other modules will like color it in. It's kind of like a coloring book, and we and and our brain tries to create a map of the world that we can navigate our way through. But it doesn't mean that every single thing we perceive is is what we think it is that, that for example, um, heat on the ground can cause uh, optical illusions of, oh, there's water over there in the desert. And so um, so we have mirages and actually mirages or, you know, things like that are actually a regular part of what we perceive, but they're minimal enough that they don't affect our ability to effectively navigate the world. And so evolution hasn't weeded them out. And as long as, even if the Nibelwerk did involve some false perceptions, as long as it didn't interfere with our ability to navigate the world um, and diminish our survival value, there wouldn't be any selection pressure on it to eliminate the Nibelwerk. So I would agree that there's nothing in the Catholic faith that would prevent that. However, since the Nibelwerk does um, deal with spiritual matters, if God allowed us to have a Nibelwerk-like experience that was misleading, it would be handled under the problem of evil. Um, that's not to say that um, that it couldn't be handled because, you know, the problem of evil is able to deal with various evils that we encounter, and it could deal with this as well, but it would be an evil and would fall under that at that point. Uh, Orange Lawai on YouTube writes, it is possible that a new heretical sect formed that believed in reincarnation, and this is what Paul was experiencing. Yes, in fact, I uh, I believe we either mentioned or hinted at that, or you know, implied that in the episode that we didn't know exactly, you know, what the shape of religion was globally because in the. 40th century because of how narrow Paul's circle of people he talked to was. And obviously, any given group can go off the rails at any point in history. Austin M. writes on YouTube, After the discussion here and in episode 161 on the production process, I'm super curious about what goes into an episode. Do you think you could share some info on how you make an episode in more detail? What hardware and software do you use? How long does it take in total, and how much is research versus recording versus editing, etc.? Do you often refer to the the same source material or find new source material each time? I would love to learn more about behind the scenes of an episode. So I'll need your help, uh, Dom, for some of this. But basically, um, I I'm constantly researching and thinking about future topics. To do that, I uh, 
will watch videos and read audio books or have electronic books read to me by text to speech. And I basically do that every time I, I lay down to go to sleep. Uh, whether it's a nap or going to sleep for the evening. And then if I wake up in the middle of the night, because humans are designed to have biphasic sleep, um, I'll, and I wake up in the night for an hour or two, I'll be listening. And I'm just constantly uh, doing that as research. Then I need to produce a script every week. And the scripts I write in the evenings and on weekends. And if it's a fairly simple mystery... I can write a script in a day. Uh, the scripts run typically between 20 and 35 pages long in outline form. Um, and I can do that in a day if I don't have to stop to do a lot of research. Um, so like straightforward stories like Greenbrier Ghost. I did all that in one day. Border Patrol Ghost, sim similar. It's very straightforward. On the other hand, if it's like our 9-11 episodes where I had to deal with these complex arguments from both sides, that took a lot longer. Um, so the time varies. The script writing time can be as short as a day, but it can also span weeks as I try to get the scripts together. And I really have to pre-plan for those big complex episodes. Then once we sit down, we basically do it in real time. Um, it takes only fractionally longer for us to record an episode than what you hear, uh, especially these days. Now that we're using video production, we just sit down and do it. And there's a, you know, we don't do multiple takes typically. I mean, we may have one or two takes that we end up dropping, but it's very minimal. Um, and then the files are handed over and Dom does the editing. Uh, would you describe that process, Dom? Sure. Uh, so we asked about software hardware uh, that we use. We generally record uh, in Zoom. That's how we get our video. We we record via Zoom. Uh, I record the audio files using on a Mac using a few pieces of software called the Loopback Audio Hijack and uh, uh, Farago is our sound card, all from Rogue Amoeba, which I highly recommend. They're fantastic. Um, we have uh, we right now we're using basic video cameras. Uh, I have a Logitech C920 camera. I think that's what it is. Um, I think you have something similar, Jimmy. I have a Logitech Stream Cam. Yeah. We're thinking of upgrading. Now that we're doing more video, get better cameras, better lighting. But that, that's where we are now. So I take the files and I right now I use a program called Adobe Premiere Rush, which is a simplified uh, video editing software, kind of akin to uh, yeah, Apple's iMovie. The reason I use Rush is because it allows for more complex titling, like the overlays and things like that than iMovie does. And we had wanted some some more motion graphic-y sort of stuff. Uh, we, I am not a, a video editor as much as I'm an audio guy. I'm still learning. So you'll, you're seeing my work as I learn. Uh, and and, it, and yeah. that's just like the audio version of the show. If you go back and listen to episode one, it's way more primitive audio-wise than it is yeah. now. So there's a learning curve and we believe in continuous improvement here. Definitely, definitely. And uh, so uh, I edit that and then I uh, edit an audio version as well, putting in sponsor spots and that sort of stuff. And then that gets uploaded to YouTube, both the StarQuest YouTube channel, Jimmy's YouTube channel. Uh, we, I upload an audio version to uh, our uh storage online and set it up in our website. Our website is our distribution engine, which is kind of unique, I think, among podcasters. So 
that that's a whole different topic. And I actually wrote about this on my blog, uh, betnet.com, B-E-T-T-N-E-T.com. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, a while ago about my editing process and how podcasts get, get made at StarQuest. So uh, you, I'll, I'll put a link and you can check that out. It's a multi-part uh, blog series. Uh, so, Also, Austin asked, uh, do you often refer to the same source material or find new source material each time? The answer is it's almost always new because the um, there's a new topic every week and I have a deliberate mix of topics. And frequently a given information resource will have only one topic, like a book about 9-11 is a book about 9-11. You know, so I, there's, there's often not, I mean, maybe there's something in it I can go back to in a future episode that relates to a different topic, but because most resources are on individual topics, it means I'm doing research with new sources every time, with a few exceptions. 13 Things That Don't Make Sense, Michael Brooks's book that we quoted from today, has 13 different chapters on, on interesting, mysterious topics. And so I can use that in multiple episodes because it gives me a nice chapter-sized digest of individual topics, and it's got more than one. So you will hear some books or other resources coming back in multiple episodes. But most of the time, I'm dealing with totally new sources every episode. So Papa Kiwi on YouTube sent a, a comment and said, I prefer episodes on realistic topics, not episodes like that one. And I appreciate that. Uh, that's why we do the mix of topics, so that if a particular episode one week isn't to your taste, hopefully the next week's will. So there's something for everybody. Brendan Fisher commented on YouTube, great episode, great twist at the end. Yeah, I love it when I can uh, tell the story in a way that involves a twist. That's always a lot of fun for me. Michael wrote on Facebook, fascinating episode. I loved how you approached the different threads of the story, from Switzerland to Greece to flying cars to Masons. The big reveal at the end had me at the edge of my seat. Thanks for a great episode. As a consumer of media, I'm very plot driven and I am have some skill at predicting where the plot's going to go because I think like a writer. And um, so I love it when there are big reveals that I didn't see coming. And when I have done a little bit of fiction writing, that's often a key concern for me. How many how can I make this reveal as big as possible and how can I have as many twists as possible along the way to the final reveal? And so I really love stories like that. Steve Numerator on YouTube writes, the mysterious headline story about antimatter stars got me thinking, is the light from such antimatter stars, if they exist, composed of antiphotons? Would anti-stars give off anti-light? Would a be wouldn't a beam of anti-light striking normal matter cause mutual annihilation or only if light and anti-light photons and antiphotons struck each other? Would there be explosive destruction? When matter and antimatter collide to their mutual doom, does the release of energy give off both light and anti-light? Or is the answer that photons are incapable of being either normal matter or antimatter, but are rather a particle that cannot be anti because visible light is merely a certain wavelength of electromagnetic, electromagnetic radiation? Come to think of it, I've heard of antiprotons and positrons, but is there an equivalent to an antineutron where the neutron has no charge? 
So um, the truth is that we don't know as much about antimatter as we would like because there's so little of it for us to test. For example, um, the difference between normal matter and antimatter is the reversal of charge. Um, and not anything else. So a positive particle like a proton becomes negative and a negative particle like an electron becomes positive. But as far as we know, that's the only difference. But we still don't have enough antimatter to test it and see, does it fall up or down? You wouldn't expect it to, you would expect it to fall down because its mass isn't negative, we don't think. And so it, if charge is the only difference, you would expect it to fall down like normal matter does, but we haven't been able to test that. And so there's a lot we don't know yet in this area, but I can tell you um, what is the current thinking on this subject. Um, now, you put your finger on a key issue, which is, can, are there, are there anti-neutrons because neutrons have a neutral charge. They're neither positive nor negative. And that neutrality is going to be key on the question of light. Um, in the case of neutrons, the answer is yes, there are antineutrons. And even though a neutron's total charge is neutral, Neutrons are made of quarks. A neutron has three quarks in it, and quarks have fractional positive and negative charges. So if you have a plus two-thirds quark and two minus one-third quarks, it balances out. But you could reverse that and have a minus two-thirds quark and two plus one-third quarks. And that would also balance out to an overall neutral charge, even though the quarks are anti-quarks. So you can have a neutron that is uh, an anti-neutron and will still be negative because the polarity of the charges of the particles it's made of are reversed. Um, now, what about light? Well, light is photons, and photons are what are known as force-carrying particles. Um, another force-carrying particle is a, a gluon. Um, gluons, like, glue the quarks onto each other to make protons and neutrons. And what photons do is they carry the electromagnetic force. And as a result, they're neutral. And so uh, the current thinking is that light is its own antiparticle and that this may be true of all of the force carrying particles, that they're neutral. And so they're their own antiparticle, if you want to think about it that way. However, there is some question about that. And I recently was looking at a paper that proposed that we may be able to distinguish anti-light from regular light, that there may be anti-photons that have different properties than regular photons. And so there may be an experimental way we can test that. And that's what this paper was discussing. So the current thinking is that uh, light and anti, that light is its own anti-particle, um, but that may not be the case. And we need to test because we haven't had a lot of experience with antimatter yet. Wow. That's 
That blows my mind. All right. Thank you, everyone, for all of the excellent feedback. So let's talk about our mysterious headlines. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, we talked a good bit about uh, evolution and change of life forms on Mars. And of course, we have that here on Earth, too. In fact, humans are evolving to have a new artery in their arm. Um, there is, so we've got two major arteries in our arm, the, in our arms, the radius, which is the one you feel when you take someone's pulse and the ulna. Well, there's a third one that we have when we're early embryos. It's uh, kind of between them. It's called the uh, medial artery and it helps in early embryonic development to pump blood to our hands as our hands are developing in the womb. But then after it gets the hands to a certain level of development, it typically fades. Our body reabsorbs this artery and we don't have it after that. But uh, some people do. Sometimes it hangs around. Sometimes it's still there when a child is born. And sometimes it's still there as an adult. About, I think it was 200 years ago, based on the studies that have been done, like 10% of people um, had a, a median ar medial artery in their arm as adults. And by the early 20th century, it was 30%. Mm. And so there is some kind of selection pressure. They're not sure why. This was before keyboards, but... I don't know, maybe keyboards are going to require, are going to put even more selection pressure on the genes uh, to keep the medial artery around. Um, we'll have to wait 100 years to find that out. But it is thought that by the year 2100, so within just a few generations, it may be normal for humans to have the medial artery, even as adults. And so that's an evolutionary change that's happening right now in human beings. Also, uh, with the reappearance of this artery, there's also a reappearing knee bone that we're mm. apparently reacquiring as well. So we'll have a link to a story. You can read about that. And on, on the genetics front, it looks like we're starting to get actual dinosaur DNA. Um, not from things, mosquitoes trapped in amber, like in Jurassic Park, <laughs> but actually they have, they've been, they've got some new techniques uh, that have allowed them to recon, to reconstruct uh, DNA strands from dinosaurs in China. And so we'll have a link to that as well. They're not ready to open Jurassic Park yet. And fortunately, the dinos they have acquired, reacquired some DNA from are um, omnivores. And they were basically the sizes of peacocks, not T-Rexes. So they wouldn't be as big a threat. They're not, they're not you know, obligate carnivores. Um, but uh, check that out as well. I now have that theme song running in my head. <laughs> All right, that does it from us. So we would love to hear from you. What are your theories about the reported canals on Mars and the possibility that life exists there? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page by sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? <laughs> 
Next episode, we're going to be picking up right where we left off with the apparent discovery of life on Mars by the Viking missions in the 1970s. We're going to talk about the controversy that ensued and all of the evidence we've gotten since then that there is life on Mars. Excellent, excellent. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines in our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Fear Vento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters. Accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit FearVentoLaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash PSP.